So tonight we're at um, chapter 50. There's 50 chapters in this book, and we are at the 50th one. I'm going to back us up just to uh, verse 29 of the previous chapter, because from verse 29 through uh, chapter 50, this is really the, the account of the death and burial of Jacob. And so just to read through those last verses of chapter 49 again. Then he charged them, saying to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Now this is, of course, Jacob speaking. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. It's kind of heartbreaking that, you know, his favorite wife uh, was Rachel, but she died before they could get there. And so she's not buried with the rest of the, the patriarchs here. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so this is, this is the last moments of Jacob's life. Um, he's very determined that he will, his, his remains would be brought to the land that was promised to him and his ancestors in the land of Canaan. He counted it as vitally important that he would have, find his final resting place there with Abraham and Isaac and the wives that, that were associated with these men. And this is because the thing that I think is a hallmark of Jacob's life is that he was somebody who pursued after God. He's the one who wrestled with God. He was the one that held tightly to the promises of God, which I think is a great characteristic for any of us to have. You know, we're going to have our times of stumbling and falling and failing and, and weakness and doubt and all that. But if if the, the uh, trajectory of our life is to continue to follow after and hold fast to the promises of God, I think that's a very laudable quality to have as a Christian. And, um, you know, Jacob had a lot of, uh, lot of faults. He had, he had many sins, um, but he had this unquenchable desire to receive God's blessing and to live within the sovereignty of God. And that, that's one of the things that, you know, I try to make my life all about. There's a lot of things I don't understand. There's a lot of things uh, that I buck up against because like a lot of us, I'm a, I'm a self-willed person. You know, you, you see something and you want it to go a certain way and you push on that. But the one thing I've tried uh, to, to make true about my Christian life, and this is something that only came after having enough years to get a little bit of maturity, is to understand the sovereignty of God to understand the providence of God, that you know things happen in our life for a reason, and it's not a random reason, or it's not a reason that has anything other than to do with anything other than the will of God for your life and your part in His overall plan. And this is something I think also that became very much a hallmark of, of Jacob's life is that over time he started to see you know, how these, these things, the way the Lord would move him here and there, uh, the way in which the Lord brought, frankly, a wife into his life that he didn't even want, um, and, and the many other things that had happened, what happened with his favored son, Joseph. 
and to go for all those years thinking his son was dead only to find out that he's literally going to be the savior of the highway of the seed. And, and I think that quality ultimately was passed to Joseph. And we're going to see how Joseph's understanding of the sovereignty of God was a hallmark of, of his walk with God as well. So now we jump into chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him. Remember now, Jacob is still in Egypt at this point uh, and has been there now for some 17 years uh, because after, Joseph gets, or after Jacob gets into the land, he lives another 17 years, so he must have got there when he was about 130 because we know he dies at age 147. So Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph, and jo another one? Oh, goodness. Um, I hate to interrupt, but maybe what we need to do is take, is it coming right over that chair that you're sitting in? Um, Okay, well, we got a little bucket here, and we'll, uh, man, I had to say something on Sunday, didn't I? Gosh, the Lord should deal with me on that. I guess he is. <laughs> oh, honestly. Um, so we read there that Joseph, uh, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Now, the Egyptians were excellent at that. Uh, they led the world in embalming. And, uh, and so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned him 70 days. Now, a couple things about that. One thing that struck me, as you read this, and you read that they embalmed Jacob, and then they're going to bring him back to Israel, and they're going to bury him. Wouldn't that be just mind-blowing if they found the place where Jacob was buried and much like as they found Egyptian mummies whose bodies, I mean, they weren't perfectly intact, but they, they were certainly better preserved than they would be without the process that the Egyptian used. Wouldn't that be something if one day you pick up a, uh, or you go on a website and they say, great new discovery, we think we have found the place and the, per you know, but anyway, that's rumination. Now, the fact that they, they, uh, the Egyptians mourned him 70 days. Egyptians would mourn a pharaoh's passing 72 days. And so that they would mourn Jacob for 70 days, almost as long as they would mourn one of their country's leaders, was a, just another indication of just how much reverence the people of Egypt had for Joseph. Because Joseph, as we know, he became, you know, the, the right hand of Pharaoh. He became the savior of the nation. He exhibited administrative skills that, that became very advantageous to Egypt, certainly very advantageous to Pharaoh. And, uh, and so there was a reverence for him that was so high that when his father died, the man that brought him into being, um, th that they would have that kind of of mourning for, for Jacob. The other question I have is in the 17 years that Jacob lived in Egypt before he passed, I wonder if there was any way in which he himself distinguished his own reputation on his own account uh, during the time that he spent there. But at the very least, this is an indication of how the people of Egypt viewed Joseph with that kind of respect. 
Now, when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. Now, at this point, um, at this point, Joseph would be about 56 years old. Uh, he was 17 when he came into Egypt around the time that he was, he was uh, sold into slavery. And, um, and then he was there for 22 years before, uh, before Jacob moved there. And Jacob lived there 17 years. So you put that all together, he's about 56 years old at this point. So he has been in place as Pharaoh's number one guy uh, now for quite a while. And, uh, and his service to the country, I'm sure, is critical to the day-to-day -day, um, affairs of the nation. And so he's coming to Pharaoh, and he is, he is um, he's basically asking Pharaoh to uh, allow him to go and to honor his father according to what his father uh, had asked before he passed. And again, the fact that, that Jacob had asked that, please bring my body back to the land of Canaan, is an indication that Jacob never stopped believing the promise that first was given to Abraham, then was given to Isaac, then was repeated to him a couple of times, that this is the land that Lord intends for you. Now, men, last night we were, we were all over a chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we were literally in the passage of Hebrews from verse 8 of chapter 11 uh, to, I think, around verse 22, where the hall of faith turns its attention on the patriarchy of Israel, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Joseph. And in, in, in a manner of different perspectives, that passage of scripture is describing how these men were willing to do pretty amazing things for which they did not see the outcome and they did not know the reasons why. And they did not know how what God was asking would happen. And they didn't know where they were going. But the thing that the passage brings home so well is they knew who was doing the asking. It started with Abraham. When Abraham is told by God to leave this place where your family is, where you're all comfortable, where everything works well because you understand the place you live, and go to the place that I will show you. It's not like go to this place, here, here's a travel brochure, here's the description of the way, here is the, um, you know, the house you're going to live in and all that. No, it's just get moving and go to the place that I will direct. And of course, people just don't do that. And yet Abraham did because it became evident to Abraham that it was God who was asking. And, and, and when when Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, when, when Abraham was asked to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, the son of promise, the son that they literally waited uh, for some 25 years before the Lord actually delivered on that promise. And now the Lord is asking, take this son and place him on the altar as a burnt offering and, and sacrifice him. And so here is Abraham trying to hold into his mind a promise He'll be a great nation, and that boy right there is the one who's going to be the progenitor of it. 
and to command, take that son and offer him. And the only way that, that Abraham could reconcile that dissonance between those, that promise and command was to say, well, then God will raise him from the dead. And this, of course, is the hallmark of faith. And, and what, what becomes the hallmark of this great family that becomes the nation of Israel is the understanding that the Lord God is a promise keeper. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. And this becomes emblazoned in the DNA of this family, which is why to this day, the people of Israel not only exist, but are back in that very land that that Jacob was sure was theirs. He just wasn't in it at that moment. And there was reason why he couldn't be in it at that moment, but he never doubted the promise that that was their land. And so Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? This would be like... uh, (laughs) uh, uh, the vice president, the cabinet members, uh, the leaders of, of Congress, all gathering together and tracking with this procession to honor this man. And it, it, it's extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, Egypt wasn't just some, you know, third world podunk backwater nation. Egypt was one of the great nations, the great empires of the time, of, of antiquity period, and, and all of these individuals, the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, this would be government officials, governors of different provinces of, of the empire, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers his, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. So you could imagine... The path between Egypt and, and, and Canaan and, and coming through that is this massive, regal, royal procession um, that must have been a sight to behold for anybody that was living in that area and seeing this going by and, uh, and understanding that this is, this is an amazing, whatever this is, this is an amazing event, the likes of which we've never seen um, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at this threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, it's interesting that name that they gave it, um, uh, Abel Mizraim, because it literally means uh, meadow of Egypt. But apparently in the Hebrew, there's a play on words with just a couple of changes of lettering. It also means the mourning of Egypt, the mourning as in lamenting because of the loss of someone. And this became uh, the name of the place. And so uh, it, it's, a, um, 
It's a very big, big gathering. It's a very regal gathering. And the fact that they were mourning there for seven days makes it so very uh, important and significant. And so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So that really kind of turns the page in a major uh, segment of the history of the people of Israel. And, and so now we pick up in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, hmm, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now this would be a pretty natural uh, sentiment that they would have uh, because they know that that uh, their dad really was the linchpin of the family. You can bet that with these, all these different sons that came from four different mothers, that were, and we, we've seen right the way through the history of Jacob's family, that there was a clear pecking order. There was a pecking order of wives. There was a pecking order of sons. There was favoritism. There was, there, there was a lot of dysfunction in this family. But the dad, Jacob, was, was more or less the matrix that held it all together. Well, now he's gone. I mean, I think we see this in our own time that sometimes after the parents are buried in a family, that's when uh, things that had been simmering from amongst the siblings kind of boil to the top because the governance of the parents now is out of the way. And so now the real, oh, I see a lot of people going, yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. <laughs> but, uh, but that's kind of nat human nature. And these guys, they understand, boy, they're, they're, they're rap sheet in terms of the way in which they've treated Joseph. It's pretty long and it's pretty horrible. And, and so they're wondering, well, maybe all of this sort of uh, huggy, kissy, makeup kind of stuff that happened before our dad died uh, might be reconsidered or may have even been, you know, a facade and that the real sentiments are now going to come out and they're not going to be good for us. And it's typical that people who are perhaps not close to God would expect to be treated as they would think they would be treating that person if the, if the roles were reversed. And so it's, it, it's weighing heavily on their, on their hearts and minds that, that uh, Joseph now is gonna, he's gonna repay them. Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg, notice how they're putting this in the lips and the voice of, his, of the father. It's like, well, dad said, he said, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, it would be interesting to know if Jacob ever really said that. I mean, it, re it really would be. Um, they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded, you know, maybe it's true. I hope it is, but maybe it's not. Um, Thus you say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers, and by the way, the fact that Joseph wept is, is probably out of 
realization that they would think that way about him. That they would think that... See, Joseph, I think more than any of his brothers, really valued them as a family. They valued, he valued his father as the leader of this great family that has precious promises from God. And he never looked at it as what he could get out of the brothers. He had that unfortunate case when he was a young boy about kind of sharing his dreams uh, in a way that maybe was a little bit of braggadocio. But, um, but Joseph always had a pure heart about the importance of his family. And so he, he weeps when he hears this. Verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Now, they have said this many, many times up to this point once they realized that this very powerful Egyptian official was their brother. Um, and, uh, and of course, that the, the, the way in which Joseph initially approached them uh, with all this sternness and demands and the like. Um, but uh, Joseph said to them, verse 19, do not be afraid, for, for, for am I in the place of God? Now, here we see Joseph laying out in a very sincere way his recognition of the sovereignty of God. He, he's saying, do you think that I am in a position to interpret the events that happened to me in such a way that you harmed me and I am now going to harm you? He says, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, there are countless things you can find in Scripture that fit that, that pattern, where someone or someone's intends something for evil and God turns it into something very good. And, and perhaps the, the best example of that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The, the, the uh, Sanhedrin and, and the Pharisees and Sadducees they wanted Jesus gone. Jesus, by, by the time they were ready to put him on the cross, Jesus had established his credibility. And I don't know how many of them would say, I guess then he is God. But they could not deny that the things that he said that would prove that he is God had indeed happened. The raising of Lazarus, Lazarus is what ultimately said, this guy is going to cost us our place, that is, the temple, and our nation unless we do something about this. And of course, then the leaders are saying, well, it's fitting that one man died to save a nation. Their, their, their designs vis-a-vis -vis Jesus was, we must get this guy off the scene. From the Roman perspective, it's like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, Pontius Pilate by that point in time had already had a number of missteps with the emperor. And, and he's, he's, the governor over perhaps the most volatile region in the empire of the time. And all he wants is just, just, can we just have peace here? Can you people just chill out? And now he's got the, the leadership of the people coming to him and saying, this guy's an insurrectionist. This guy is, is, is perpetrating treason and all these different things. Pilate didn't see a reason to put him on the cross, but for the fact that he just needed this to go away. And so the, the intents of the hearts of the people that had anything to do with the, the crucifixion of Jesus were evil, just plain evil. Even bring it back to Satan. Ah, good, I finally got this guy. We're going to nail him. 
except that God was way ahead of them. And the very thing that they were scheming was something that needed to happen to complete the very plan, the sovereignty of God to save the human race. And, and Joseph is basically expressing that same recognition of the sovereignty of God in the midst of the foibles of human beings to say, well, you meant it this way, but God was doing this with that. And it was good. What God did was for his glory and for our good. And this is what I mean when I say that um, Joseph had a keen sense of the sovereignty of God and he was totally submitted to it. And again, I pray every day. This is why I like that song, I Surrender So Much. This is what we need to do every day. Romans 12, 1. Uh, we, we need to do that every day. Every day we have yet another challenge not to be rebellious against the sovereignty of God. And, and some days you're, you're spot on it, you're walking right in it, and other days you're blowing it up and, and messing up. And, and, uh, and so what does Joseph do? Uh, now, therefore, do not be afraid, verse 21. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What, what Joseph is doing here is he is recognizing that God's forgiveness of us is incalculable. Um, we understand very well the depravity of our own hearts and we know that God, according to his word, and he never ever goes against his word, he has forgiven us. And so we saw this not too long ago, Colossians 3.13. We're instructed there to bear with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. And Obviously, uh, <laughs> Joseph could have a very sharp-edged complaint against his brothers. No question about it. But he understands that what he's called to do by God is to forgive these brothers, to allow God to be glorified in the forgiveness. God is seldom glorified in the punishment we bring upon others for what they've done to us. God is always glorified in the forgiveness we extend to people who have harmed us. And so Joseph is totally deferring to the sovereignty of God, totally recognizing the providential hand of God in the way in which his life has been directed. Now, uh, in verse 22, we get the conclusion of Joseph's life. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Now, it's interesting. Joseph did not live as long as the... Uh, as the men who came before him, you know, he didn't live as long as his, his dad. He didn't live as long as Isaac. He didn't live as long as Abraham. I think Abraham was 175. Isaac was 180. Uh, Jacob was 147. He's 110. We don't know the circumstances of his death. We get a sense that his brothers are still alive. Um, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to their third generation. So he got to see the great-great-grandchildren of, um, of Ephraim. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying. Now, when it says Joseph said to his brethren, that could mean literally his, his brothers, or it could mean those that are descendants of his brothers. We don't actually know. But he tells them, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, this is interesting because Joseph here is prophesying. Joseph is, is, is understanding that 
the people of God are going to be in the land of Egypt for some time, whether he knew the exact period of time or not. He knew they would be there for some time, but he's assuring them God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. See, he's repeating it again. He says it in verse 24. Then he says it in verse 25 that God is coming for you and God is going to bring you to the place that he has promised for you. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So this is astounding. Joseph has by far spent way more time in the land of Egypt than he ever did. He only spent up to this point 17 years in the land of Canaan. But again, because he inherited the promise from, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their place is the land. And therefore, his resting place, much like his father, he insists, he extracts a promise from his brothers. He took an oath from them, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now this, this is, um, I think this is a, a, a sterling example of living in the promise that God is coming for you. This is the promise we live in, okay? We are people of God. Israel is a nation where people of God, they were a chosen people of God. They were an elected people of God, okay? Different covenant, but same paradigm. We are a chosen royal priesthood of God. We are people that God has elected to be in his kingdom. He has, he has given us a home that we don't occupy now, but it is, a, it is a present possession that will be future enjoyed. And he is coming for us. God has promised that he's coming for us. In fact, week after this Sunday, we'll be talking all about it in, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, the rapture. He is coming for us. And he is going to take us to the place that he has promised us. And, and we can learn from these men how they held on to that promise even though they had never seen it, it had not happened yet. They are living on the promise because of who made the promise, the promise keeper being the Lord God. And so the parallels here are stark and useful to encourage us to live out our lives with that same expectation and confidence as these men. And so the book of Genesis closes with that promise that, that uh, you know, the land that's been promised is not yet uh, occupied, but will, the promise will be fulfilled. Um, and it's, it's got a lot of transferable value for us as believers. So that's the book of Genesis. Now we have time remaining, so I thought what I might do to save a little time next week is to provide an introduction to the book of Exodus. We'll just keep trucking. Uh, that's what we do. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, the book of Exodus is a fascinating book for a lot of reasons. First of all, the author. The author, uh, at least in the minds of conservative theologians, the author is Moses. Uh, there's a lot of sort of critical scholarship that find it hard to believe that the authorship of this book would be Moses. They, they would posit that it's more likely that it was multiple authors, it was not really written around the time of Moses. But, uh, but I think, uh, once again, the conservative theologians and, and uh, Bible historians, 
stay, stay strong with the idea that, that uh, Moses is the author, and I think there's good reason, uh, most especially the reason why we often believe things we do about the Bible is because the Bible tells me so. Uh, so, for example, uh, we know in several places that, that God actually commanded Moses to write certain things down. Uh, for example, in Exodus chapter 17, um, Moses is told to write down the account of Joshua's military encounter with the Amalekites. This is that battle where um, as long as Moses had his arms up on the hill while Joshua was fighting, the Israelites were prevailing, and if he got tired and the arms came down, all of a sudden the, the pitch of the battle would be different. And, uh, and so Aaron and this man Hur uh, stood on either side of Moses and helped to keep his arms up. Uh, and, and, and God specifically told Moses, write that down, record this. Uh, Moses was told to, to write the communication of the Lord to him on Mount Sinai. And we see that called out in scripture. Um, there are other places in the Pentateuch where, that verify that Moses authored this book. Uh, example, Deuteronomy 31.9. Moses wrote down the law for the priests. And in Deuteronomy 31.24, Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end. And we know, of course, that in this book of Exodus, those, those laws are, are, are written down. And so we know that the Lord, in several places, is referring back and commanding Moses, hey, hey take this down, take this down. Um, the coup de grace on this particular point is that Jesus identified Moses as the author of Exodus. Jesus introduced a quotation uh, that he made of Exodus 20, verse 12, and 21, verse 17, with the words, Moses said, this is in Mark 7, verse 10, and a quotation of Exodus 3, verse 6, by the words, have you not read in the book of Moses, which he called out in Mark chapter 12, verse 26. And so uh, this is one of those times where the Bible is making very clear that indeed, not only do the traditions hold that Moses was the author of this book and indeed the entire Pentateuch, but, uh, but, but God himself is saying it, Jesus is saying it, and Jesus is taking it as literal recording of literal history by a literal man in history who happened to be Moses. Uh, as far as the date of the book, uh, there's two kind of time frames that are, are usually put forth. One is uh, somewhere between 1450 and 1425 B.C., during the reign of the Egyptian um, pharaoh Amenhotep II, and the later is uh, the later date is 1290 BC during the reign of Ramses II. But again, I think the better scholarship points to the earlier date for the writing of this book. Now, there's a, a number of different themes and messages that come through the book, and these are important. First of all, the title, the word Exodus. Uh, the title tells an important story. In its purest sense, the word Exodus means the way out. And uh, it's precisely what this book describes. God providing a way out from the slavery bondage that his people are in in Egypt. And by the way, uh, the, the slavery in Egypt and the deliverance from that that is orchestrated by God becomes typologically very meaningful for the slavery and the bondage that we are in, in sin, before the way out has been made by God through his son Jesus, 
dying on the cross of, of Calvary. And central to this, this narrative of the way out is God's man, this character, Moses. And uh, God prepares him, then he calls him to cha- challenge Pharaoh and, and to lead God's people out of, out of slavery. And uh, he becomes the, their leader in this first stage of moving from bondage into freedom. And uh, this book is actually the second part of a five-part narrative. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the Bible. They are referred to as the Law of Moses. Uh, Jesus said so in Luke 24, 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, Jesus is referring there to the typical Jewish division of the scriptures as they knew them, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, these first five books, referred to as the Pentateuch, uh, come from the Greek word penta, or five, five parts. Um, The Jews also referred to those five books as the Torah, now, the word Torah has a number of different applications, but, but that's typically the name that's given to those five books. And um, when we look at the book of Exodus, we have to look at it with that thought in mind that it's part of a five-part narrative. Um, so we have to consider not only what happened in the book of Genesis, what's already been said in Genesis, but also what the rest of the books of Moses say. Um, and that's why... The book of Exodus begins with a reference to the past. You see it in the first eight verses of chapter one. And it ends in chapter 40 with a reference to the future. And in between, it's telling us a pretty remarkable story about God breaking into the experience of his people to deliver them from slavery and to set them apart as his own. Uh, This is why the Jewish people, uh, in the eyes of the pagan peoples around them, we're often held in re- with reverence because the stories, the accounts had gotten around about how their God actually um, broke into, God actually broke into their history. God actually became actively involved in the deliverance of his people. And this, of course, was evidenced by the way in which God used these um, Miracles that Moses will ultimately bring to bear upon Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh that this command, let my people go, comes from none other than God. And so what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is, uh, is God, it's about what God is doing for his people and uh, God's revelation of himself to his people. Up to this point in time, God had really only revealed himself to a very small club, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to a lesser extent, Sarah, and, and maybe to the other um, members of the patriarch, but it wasn't to a whole people in quite the same way we'll see in the book of Genesis. Um, and we have to understand that this becomes the beginning of God's using... first two constituencies of people to make himself known to humanity. The first called out people, we're studying right now, the Jewish people. Ultimately, the second called out people, the church. It's it's because of 
the existence of Israel and their impact on the world, and then later, the existence of the church and our impact on the world, that people can see God at work and can hear God's word. And this is, this is what's so meaningful about the Jewish people as they come into their own as a nation. Uh, if God doesn't reveal himself to human beings, we would never know him. You know, there's none who understands. There's none righteous. No, not one. All our sinners fall short of the glory of God. There's none who understands. No, not one. All in Romans chapter 3. All describing that apart from God actively inserting himself into our lives, we would not have a clue. And we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even be looking for a clue. Um, Jesus said in John 17, 3, in that wonderful, beautiful prayer that he prays, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, as the first chapter of Hebrews tells us, is, is God's latest manifestation of himself to human beings. And, and whereas the Jewish people were used mightily by God to, to establish God Almighty to the world, whether they chose to believe it or not, we as the church, described as the body of Christ, now it is our mission to make his son known because in knowing the son, you know the father. And so uh, how God reveals himself in the book of, of Exodus is both in terms of what he says and what he does. And we'll see that very clearly. Uh, we hear God speaking. He speaks to Moses, and that's recorded here. And then he uses Moses to speak through Moses to the world, to, to Pharaoh, to the world. And this becomes a... Um, a very important aspect of this book because here we're getting blow by blow. This is what God is saying to his chosen vessel. And then we have the codification of those words that were spoken to Moses, which became the guide for Israel and a lesson for the world. Here's the righteous will of God expressed in the law. And here's this grand experience, experiment rather, which proves that you can't keep it. Therefore, you need a savior. And, and so what God is saying by what, uh, what he says to Moses and through Moses becomes one of the hallmarks of the book. But then also what God is doing. Um, God is revealing himself through his actions in this book. He breaks into history. He does things that are unquestionably God. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea so that his people could get through it and then bring it crashing down on the most powerful army of the time was known throughout the ancient world in a very short time frame after that. People hundreds of years later would know the Israelites were the people for whom God did that miraculous thing. And so this becomes um, very, very significant about the account of, of Exodus. The last thing I want to uh, bring to your notice, and then we'll stop because we're, we're running out of time here, but this book, more than any other book, really draws a line between Moses and his typological significance to Jesus. And there's many things that we'll see as we go through the book. Uh, the way Moses is portrayed in Exodus parallels and foreshadows Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospels. Uh, there's a lot of parallels in the way in which the narrative about Moses tracks the narrative about Jesus. Uh, we, we hear about their birth and their mir miraculous preservation. And in both cases, Egypt has a lot to do with that. Um, we know very little about them between the time of their birth and the time of their public service. 
we don't get all the, the nitty-gritty details of what Jesus was like on the playground. Uh, we don't know whether Jesus uh, ever had to be told to clean his room. I mean, those kind of things would be the kind of things that would, people would drill into and bear on. And, 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 and the Lord said, no, I'm not going to distract him with that. They don't need to know that. What they need to know is the public ministry. Um, we know a lot about both of their public call and commission. We know a lot about Moses and Jesus's work in the redemption and salvation of people. And uh, what Moses represents in the Old Testament very much um, mirrors or foreshadows, foreshadows what Jesus means in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, this is why men in our study of, of Hebrews chapter 3, uh, that chapter explicitly compares and contrasts both of them. Uh, both serve the Lord faithfully. Moses serves as God's servant. Jesus serves as God's son. Um, and so the, uh, the, the foreshadowing is wonderful, so much so that when you get over to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually shares a prophetic word that he receives from the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, between verses 15 and 22, this is what Moses shares. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. In other words, it was too frightening. It was too amazing. It was too, too uh, awesome to have to go through that again. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. In other words, that kind of reverence for God is rightly placed. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to, to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, and the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This, by the way, was the battleground uh, with that fellow from um, you know, being reasonable. Uh, the, the point I was standing on is the Lord has spoken something that will evidence his deity. And it happened. And it happened. And the impact of it is reverberating through all of humanity. And it's wonderful. And they didn't want to hear it. And there's an awful lot of people in our world that don't want to hear it. But it doesn't mean it hasn't been said. And it doesn't mean it, it isn't true. No matter how the numbers of people who choose to believe or disbelieve something has no bearing on the truth of it. This is, this is a fallacy that has crept into our very moral relativistic society where uh, truth is relative. And so the more people you get seeing the same truth, the truer it becomes. Well, that's simply hogwash. And when, what's being described there in Deuteronomy is, is precisely the opposite. It's like, here's the word of God. It'll be spoken by this prophet who will be like me, but we know he's so much more. And the things that he will speak, you'd better listen to because I will hold you to account. 
is what the Lord God is saying. And so that's why I say it's going to be a very exciting book to study. I'm looking forward to going through that with all of you because you are the creme de la creme of the Bible student population in this particular town. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and for its, gosh, its power, Lord, its power and its revelation and its, it's the words of life, Lord. Where would we go? You have the words of life. And so, Father, fortify us in them. Strengthen us in our resolve and in our knowledge of you. It is only through your truth that we live, and it is only your truth that preserves us from the evil one and delivers us to the ultimate promise you've made to us, Lord. Thank you for the example of Joseph and of Jacob and of Isaac and of Abraham. Thank you, God, that these men showed us the way to being faithful even when we do not see, even when we do not understand. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for meeting us here tonight. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you people.